Good morning, Three Rivers. It's a blessing to be here with you. My name is uh, Corey Barnes. My wife Kayla and I have been members at Three Rivers for uh, a little more than a year. We've been attending for uh, quite a bit longer than that. We're blessed to uh, to be here with you. Um, uh, for those of you who are visitors this morning, just want to let all of you know we're in a season where our pastor, Mitch Jolly, is taking a sabbatical to focus on some uh, some creative projects and to come back uh, to, to continue to lead our church. Um, so, uh, so if you're here as a visitor, please know you don't have to put up with me on a weekly basis. Um, and I, I find that a lot of people find that encouraging after hearing me preach. I want to start off by, uh, by talking to you about something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, so, uh, so over the last three years now, uh, there's been something that's entered into my life that has really, uh, been an issue of, of significant concern and oftentimes an issue of, just stress. I see what's happening in our culture. Um, so, uh, so I grew up with uh, with this understanding of the world, and it has recently been challenged. And several of you understand at this point that I'm talking about the the Star Wars prequels that are the the Star Wars sequels rather that have been coming out. So, so as a uh, as as a child who grew up watching the original three movies, and and for any of you in here who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about episodes four, five, and, and six, okay, we're not counting the prequels here, uh, I've been on a roller coaster because twice in my lifetime now this story that I love so much has come out in kind of this, this new form, right? We had the prequels, which turned out to be not so great, and then we had the sequels, and, and let me tell you what has bothered me so much about the sequels to the point that it, it just really does. When I think about them, I, I get frustrated and tense and wonder what's becoming of this world and, and mourn for the younger generations. And that is, the reason I love Star Wars so much was because Star Wars gave me this story that over three movies produced something, right? Like, like we went through three movies and we saw the evil of the Empire, this, this seemingly insurmountable foe that was, that was you know, going to conquer the galaxy. And over the course of three movies, we saw heroes rise up, the Empire defeated. It seemed like justice was going to be done at the end of the movies. It seemed like the arc of the Star Wars universe was moving towards something far better. Okay, So, so I grew up with this story in mind, and I love the story because it went somewhere and it connected. And then they, they released the first of the Star Wars sequel. And everything I loved got blown up in 58 minutes. All right? It was, it, it was terrible. Because, and, and part of it is it's just cheap. It's like, oh, we have a Death Star. Now we've got like the Planet Killer. That's just cheap writing. Um, but, uh, but, but this is what's going on. And the reason I don't like them is because I don't understand why the story went nowhere. It went nowhere. And now we just have to recycle and start a new story. And I don't, I don't know if it's just bad writing or if they're trying to send a message that we're just in this universe that's on repeat. But either way, it's bad. Like it, it, it has killed the story for me. One of the reasons I've been so thankful that we as a church have been preaching through Genesis is because we see something as we preach through Genesis. We see this when we preach through any book of the Bible. And we see this whenever we watch the Bible build up on itself. So whether we're looking at the book-by-book level or whether we're looking at the, the, the individual chapters within a book level, what we find about the scriptures is that the scriptures are constantly taking us somewhere. So we are never going to reach the frustration with the Bible that I have reached with Star Wars, the idea that the universe is just on repeat and going nowhere. Now, I want to make it very clear, and this is something we have seen so vividly as we've gone through Genesis. We often will be frustrated 
that the characters in the story, that God's people in the story are not doing what we know they ought to do. But what we've also seen affirmed over and over again in Genesis is that even whenever the characters in the story are sinful and are disobedient, God in his grace is moving the story in a certain direction. So as we go in this morning to Genesis chapter 29, I'd like you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I want us first to consider the big picture items we've seen in Genesis. And then I want us to to orient ourselves before we read the text to look for some particular things as we go through the book uh, or through Genesis chapter 29. So just some reminders about where we've been. One of the things that that we see clearly in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, is that God, before the fall, creates humanity with a purpose. So the purpose of humanity is not just to be redeemed from sin. We have a a purpose that God has ordained even before the fall, and that purpose is very clearly laid out for us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God desires us to uh, be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. So there's this understanding in Genesis before the fall that humanity is going to multiply and fill the earth and then rule as God's vice regents on the earth. That's what it means to be an image bearer, that we are going to represent God to the rest of the creation to magnify the glory of God to all creation. Laid out very clearly for us in Genesis chapter 1. We see that fall in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Here's another thing that we see in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God makes it very clear that the one man, one woman covenant of marriage is essential to seeing this good work come out. So this is in Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 23 and look at verse 24. It says, the man said, this is after God has raised up Eve for him. The man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. Then the text tells us this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife and they become one flesh. So we see this, that that humanity has a purpose, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, magnify our creator to his creation. And that the one man, one woman covenant of marriage is crucial to seeing this objective, to seeing this mission fulfilled. So we see this in the biblical text. Here's another thing that we see very clearly in Genesis as we think big picture. That is, we see Genesis show us that God's intention for creation is to dwell with his creation and has, have Sabbath rest with his creatures. So we remember that, that sometimes we might say that the, the crowning achievement of God's creation is on day six of Genesis. And while it's true that humanity is a unique creation, the pinnacle of creation is day seven where God rests with creation, which, of course, we know is not coming out of God's need for physical rest. It is instead showing us God's purpose, that God wants to rest and enjoy creation and desires his creation to rest in and enjoy him. This is the purpose for which God has created the world. This is summed up well for us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where you are asked a question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to the question is, the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. So this is what we see laid out for us in Genesis. We see in Genesis that all of this, all of this is eroded because of the choice of the man and the woman to intentionally disobey God. But we see in Genesis this trajectory of redemption, that we're going to return to these good promises God has made to us and for us, that God will triumph over the work of the serpent, the, the, the symbol of evil, through the offspring of Eve. This is in Genesis 3.15. In other words, 
this is telling us that through the human story, God will redeem his original intention for humanity and for creation. So we've seen this in Genesis. Then lastly, we, we've seen, among many other things, a very big picture idea that this redemption, Genesis has zoomed us in, said, okay, now look for this redemption that's going to come through the human race. Look for it out of a particular family. And so it's zoomed us into the family of Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 17, in Genesis chapter 26, and then last week we saw in Genesis chapter 28, there are these successive promises that we have seen in Genesis that God is going to use the family of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham in a unique way to bring about redemption, not only of Abraham's family, but we're told in Genesis 12, 3, that through this family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this blessing right now is being worked out in a family, and we await the day in the biblical text, which it explodes into the global scope. And we're going to see that, how that's fulfilled as we go through the text today. So here's some things I want us to look for in Genesis 29, then we're going to read the text. First, look in this text about how we're seeing a, a continuing development of how God will faithfully work out the promise to Abraham. We're going to see that very clearly in the text. Second, look in this text how God continues to use and show the priority of the one man, one woman covenant to establish his good plan for humanity and for the world. And then thirdly, look at how God is using in this text the human story to redeem the world, to know God, and to enjoy him forever. So we want to look at those three things as we read. So let's read together Genesis 29. We're going to read verses 1 through 30 together. It says this, Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his, with his sheep, he went and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. Then Jacob heard the news about his, sorry, then Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob. He ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah. The younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, Better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So So he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, It is not custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, as we go into more worship this morning, as we consider how you're speaking to us through your word, I pray, Father God, that by your Holy Spirit moving among this body of saints that you love, that you would bind our hearts and our minds to your word. Father God, please remind all of us here that your word is authoritative. It is sufficient. Father God, that you are so good to give it to us. And Father God, remind us that what it says you have said to us and we must do. Father God, I also pray that you remind all of us here, myself especially, that I am fallible, that I make mistakes, that I say things intentionally and unintentionally that are not true. And so, Father God, if I say anything this morning that is outside of what you have revealed in your word, then, Father God, I pray that by your spirit moving in this body, driving us by grace to the truth of your word, that it would be corrected, that it would be Uh, that it would be brought to my attention, that I would repent of it publicly before this body, and that we as a family of faith that Three Rivers would move forward in purity of doctrine, not to puff ourselves up, but to be better worshipers of you and servants and ministers to the city of Rome and to the nations. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at what's going on in this. So uh, so when Dr. Darville preached for us two weeks ago, he talked to us about the value of splitting up a text into scenes. And we see that here. We don't see it as much just changing by location. What we're going to see in this text is a a series of statements about the amount of time that has passed. And that's kind of how we're going to see the story connected to itself. So I want us to look first at at a a section of text, verses 1 through 14, and and kind of look at, at when this is taking place and how this scene breaks down. This is Jacob at the well. And it's, it's told that this happens to us immediately at the conclusion of his journey that, that he's taken up from Bethel that we saw in Genesis chapter 28. So that first little, little uh, bit of text there, when uh, my translation says Jacob resumed his journey, literally it's just Jacob picked up his feet, right? The idea here that, that Genesis is conveying to us is that Jacob is just kind of stumbling into the story. It's immediately after what's happened at Bethel. The last thing we've seen is God make a promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. Jacob has kind of reacted. Uh, We've seen a mixed reaction to the promise. He wakes up and says, Yahweh is in this place. The Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know it. Then he kind of stumbles into Haran. And so, uh, so that's what's setting up this scene. So first, the fact that Jacob ends up at a well in Haran puts us in familiar territory as we've read Genesis, right? We, we have seen a story that looks very much like this one, or at least it takes place 
for the same reason, seeking out a wife for one of the covenant sons. And it's taken place at the, the same setting, a well in Haran. And this is Genesis chapter 24. But what we're going to see is, is that the, the Bible gives us these two stories in ways that makes us think one story, uh, about one story when we read the other. But what we find is not really similarity in what happens. What we find is contrast in what happens with Jacob at the well in Haran and then the servant of Abraham at the well in Haran whenever he's seeking out a bride for Isaac and comes to Haran to get Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24. Just, just consider a few points here, okay? So in Genesis 24, the servant of Abraham, this faithful servant, is well prepared. He comes with ten camels full of gifts, full of treasure, that he is going to offer as a dowry for one of the daughters of Haran to bring back as a wife for Isaac. So he comes well prepared. Jacob, here in Genesis 29, is ill-prepared. Okay, We're going to see he doesn't even really know where he is at the beginning of the story. Second, the, the, the servant of Abraham in Genesis 24 comes in prayerfully. So he comes to the well. He doesn't actually know what to do. And what does he do? He seeks the will of the Lord. And he asks the Lord to give him success on his mission. And, of course, then the Lord provides. Jacob, he comes in and he ignores God's guiding hand. Uh, we're going to see in this passage that, that Jacob is intentionally ignoring God's obvious providence that we see when we read the text. Jacob completely ignorant of it in the text. Okay? Then lastly, the, the servant, Genesis 24, is observant. He observes Rachel, I'm sorry, observes Rebecca at the well. In fact, he even intentionally sets up a scenario in which to observe the character of Rebecca at the well. And what we see with Jacob is that he is absolutely clueless. Look, look at verse 4. Uh, when he comes to the well, he, he asks the men, my brothers, where are you from? Why does he ask them this? Because he has literally just stumbled into Haran. The, the text is showing us Jacob, Jacob just picked up his feet and walked. And he just, by God's providence, gets there, though Jacob seems to be interpreting it by chance. So where the servant is observant, Jacob is clueless. Jacob also is going to look only to the beauty of Rachel. This is his cluelessness, just magnifying itself out. He's going to be impressed by her beauty and just overcome with love for her because of that. But there's, there's nothing in this entire story that shows us that, that Jacob has any concern for the character of either Rachel or Leah. Okay, so we see this contrast between Abraham's faithful, prayerful servant in Genesis 24 and then the way Jacob just bumbles into the scene in Genesis 29. All right, so what do we see in this? Well, first of all, and this is the main thing we see in this section, despite Jacob's unfaithfulness, the Lord is faithful to him as he seeks to fulfill the mission that Jacob's father, Isaac, has set him on in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. So we've already read that uh, two weeks ago. Dr. Darville led us through that section of text where what we looked at was, was that Isaac has told Jacob, don't take a woman from this area, go to the land of, of our ancestors, the land of your mother's people in Haran, take a wife from them. So what do we see here? God, by his providence, has guided Jacob to success in this mission, though everything about the story shows us Jacob personally has just kind of bumbled into it. Though Jacob seems clueless to God's guiding hand, the, the passage makes it clear that God is ordaining his steps. So first and foremost, there in chapter 29, verse 1, Jacob resumed his journey and he went to the eastern country. And where is he? All of a sudden he is in Haran. So this story that's told to us in a way where we see that he's just kind of wandering around, now he's in Haran. This is exactly where he's supposed to be. Why? Because God is providentially leading him on his journey. Second, we see God's providence and that the shepherds are gathered 
when Jacob arrives at the well, even though Jacob points out, this is the wrong time of day for you to water your sheep. So in chapter 29, verse 7, you'll see Jacob asks this question. Why are you guys even here? This isn't the time of day when you're supposed to water sheep. And this is when they tell him, well, we have this particular practice at this well, because at this well, we have to roll away the stone whenever we all come together to water the sheep. So this unusual practice is a part of God's providence and putting Jacob here exactly when he is supposed to be. And then the big one, chapter 29, verse 6. I mean, think about just, just the fact that there is, there is way too much going on here for it just to be happenstance, right? That Jacob arrives, he just kind of stumbles into this setting at the well. He asks the man, where am I? And they're like, oh, you're in Haran. He's like, oh, wow, that's where I was trying to go. He says, you guys don't know Laban by any chance, do you? And they're like, yeah, we know Laban. In fact, there is his daughter coming right now. That's God's providence, right? God has put Jacob where he needs to be, though Jacob himself seems completely ignorant of it. We have a, something in the, the text of Scripture here that reminds us of God's presence. It's just causing us to focus in. So as you read this text, one of the things in these verses in 1 through 14 that's repeated several times, four times in the, in the text, is the mention of the stone that's over the cover of the well. And we might ask ourselves, say, okay, why is, why is this stone so important? What's calling, why, why is the biblical author inspired by the Holy Spirit calling our attention to the stone? And, and the answer to that comes, I think, more clear whenever we consider what we've already seen in Genesis and then what we're going to see as we read ahead in Genesis. And that is in it, when, when God works in the life of his people, they often set up stones to recognize and say, okay, I understand that God was present here. What we see, in this, and we see this in Jacob's life. We saw it last week in Genesis chapter 28. Whenever God comes to Jacob at Bethel, what does he do afterwards? Sets up a stone. Says, I'm going to remember God met me here. So we, we've seen that then. We're going to see it later in Jacob's life, Genesis chapter 31. Whenever Jacob invokes his God in the covenant with Laban, when he finally goes out with Laban, he's going to set up a stone saying, God was here. I remember it. This is a witness about my covenant with Laban. Genesis 35, when Jacob finally makes his way back to Bethel, he is going to once again set up a stone saying, I understand God was present here. What do we see here in Genesis 29? We see a stone mentioned multiple times. Doesn't seem to have a clear role in the text, except as we read Genesis, it reminds us God is also here. I want to be very clear about this, okay? Jesus is not hiding in the stone, okay? It's, it's, it's not some prophecy that God has tucked away in the Bible so somebody could write a book about it and take your money to tell you about it, okay? That's not what's happening. It's just as we read through the text and we see over and over and over again, stones are symbols of God's presence. We as readers are reminded of what Jacob clearly misses in the text. God is here, okay? Providentially here. Jacob doesn't deserve for God to be here. Jacob hasn't prayed for God to be here, but God is present. So how does, how does this, how does this scene close? It closes with, uh, with Jacob, uh, Jacob living up to the sissy nature that we have come to expect from Jacob. Okay. Uh, remember, Jacob is a mama's boy. He's a smooth man, right? Uh, so, uh, so he's not a hunter. He's not a worker. So what does, what does Jacob do here? Jacob meets a woman, kisses her and cries. All right. So, uh, look. Everybody's seen this with, with 11 years old on, at, a, on a, at a tetherball court, right? Like, like this is what's happening. So Jacob has this reaction. He sees Rachel, kisses her, cries, and then comes to the end of, her, of his journey. 
and, and we, we close the scene here because we're going to see at the end of verse 14 that a month is going to pass. Okay, so the, so the time tells us now we're going into the next part of the story. So scene two, this is the, the most brief part of, of the story as we walk through it. Uh, verses 15 through 20, it's going to be Jacob in Laban's fields one month later. Okay, so we look there at the end of verse uh, 14, um, and we see that Jacob stays with Laban a month. So what happens is that Jacob is going to, Jacob is going to start working for his uncle Laban, and Laban's going to come to him, and he's going to make an offer... Uh, that seems to be a kind offer, but we have to really read into what's happening here. The focus of this entire section is Jacob's service to Laban. So, so we see this idea of Jacob serving Laban for something. It's all something for something here uh, that, uh, that's going to come out in the story. Okay, so the, what, what's going to happen here is Laban is going to come to Jacob and he's going to say, Jacob, listen, you've been here with me a month. You're working with me. You're going out. You're working with our hired hands. You're, 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 you're tending the sheep. And he says, you should not have to work for nothing. Now, let's, let's understand here, this might seem like a kind offer. Like, Jacob, I'm not going to treat you like a, like a servant, like a slave. I want to compensate you for your labor. But what we're going to see here is that Laban is actually very, being very shrewd with the way that he is dealing with Jacob. Let's understand a couple of things here. One is, and we're going to see this as we go through the text, Jacob continues to pay for his sin. And there's a way that, that if we were reading this through the lens of the, the ancient world, the lens of the ancient author here, we would pick up on a tough position Jacob is in that, that we in our culture might not get. Jacob is in a tough position because he's in a family member's house. He is surrounded by, by not one, but two eligible women to marry. He has fallen in love with one of them, and he is completely unable to enter into that relationship because he has no dowry. So in his culture... What you have to do if you're going to marry a woman is not just fall in love. In fact, that's, that's actually atypical that, that people fall in love before they get married in that culture. What it is is that you find someone that you desire to marry or your parents desire you to marry. And then your parents negotiate with that woman's family on your behalf. So they are looking out for your interest and using the, the family fortune, whatever it is, to get that woman to then become a part of your family. That's how it works. Bible never says that it's right. doesn't say that we should emulate it. Anybody ever wants to marry my little girls, we're not going to be talking about how many goats you have to give me, okay? We're going to talk about quite a bit, but not goats. But, but, but what we have in the ancient world is that if you want to enter into, this, enter into this covenant, this is necessary. Jacob has nothing. Laban knows it. So he comes to Jacob and says, you shouldn't work for nothing. And Jacob says, well, I'll work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, immediately we start to see the wheels turning in Laban's mind. We already know Laban's shrewd. He demonstrated that in Genesis chapter 24, whenever he was involved with the bride price for Rebekah. Now we're going to see the same things here. We already see the wheels turning in Laban's mind. Here's what we need to understand, and we'll see this in our application. Jacob's sinful actions have assured that he's the only representative of the groom's family present. In other words, no one... At the, the wedding feast, nobody in the, the, uh, nobody in the arrangement of the dowry is going to look out for his interest. So Laban is ultimately dealing with Jacob here in a similar way, in fact, almost exactly the same way that Jacob has dealt with Esau. This is coming back to bite Jacob. We're seeing that God is visiting on Jacob the punishments of his sin. How does Jacob deal with Esau? There is a family member in a tight spot, and rather than be a covenantally faithful as a family member, Jacob exploits it. Now we see Jacob as the family member in the tight spot. Rather than being covenantally faithful, Laban exploits it. 
And so scene two comes to a close. How does scene two come to a close? Well, as we look at scene two, we get down to verse 22. And what does the text tell us here? It tells us this, this nice, uh, sorry, we come through verse 20. It tells us this nice kind of sappy statement that Jacob works, he works seven years for Rachel, and they seem like nothing because of his great love for her, okay? So again, the kind of sappiness of Jacob's love story perpetuates itself. All right, scene three, okay, seven years later. We see in scene three uh, that there, are a, there is a feast and two weddings, okay? So here's what we're going to see here. First, the fact that Jacob has to come to, to Laban in verse 21 shows us that Laban is not being really forthcoming about fulfilling his end of the promise. All right? Jacob has to come to Laban and says, Laban, I don't know if you noticed, it's been seven years, give me Rachel, and the first three fifth graders are with her, so that I might lie with her. Okay? So, uh, so that's, what's, that's what's happening here. So he says, give me my wife so that I can now, I can now be husband and she can be wife to me. Laban says, fine, this was the deal that we made. So what's going to happen here is that we're going to see first in Genesis chapter 29, verse 22, what I've called here the marriage feast bride TBD, okay? So, uh, so the bride is to be determined. Let's first of all just understand very quickly the role of the marriage feast in an ancient wedding. So here's how this goes down. The, the way that an ancient wedding works, and the way that many weddings, by the way, throughout the world today continue to work, is that the, the initiation of the wedding, rather than have a meal afterwards that's maybe kind of, of, of secondary concern to the ceremony, the meal comes first. The community comes together to celebrate. And there is eating and there is often music, and this is very important. There is wine. Okay? There is alcohol served at the wedding feast. And in fact, here the word that is used for feast is a word that is based on the word drinking. Okay? So you cannot have these types of feasts in the ancient world without drinking. So they come together for the wedding feast and, and there is drinking involved. There's other customs that are also going to contribute to Laban's ability to deceive Jacob. First, the, the chief participant in the ceremony is the groom. So whenever toasts are being made and whenever ceremonial drinks are being taken, the groom is involved in all of these. So it's very hard for the groom in this ancient context to exit from this ceremony in a clear state of mind. Second, the bride, when she is finally brought to the groom, is going to be heavily veiled. Okay? This is, this is not the same as what we see in contemporary Islamic culture. There's separate concerns happening here. But on the wedding night, the bride is brought to the groom veiled. And then thirdly, the consummation of the wedding happens not in a ceremony in front of everyone, but the bride and groom go after the ceremony into a tent where it is dark, and they do what married couples do after the ceremony. And that is what consummates the relationship. So here's what happens whenever we see this happen. We see Laban's deception in 29:23 through 30, through the end of this passage. Laban takes advantage of these customs and we see in verse 25 that after Jacob has consummated the covenant, in other words, the covenant has been ratified because the, the bride and groom have been together on their wedding night. When morning came, there was Leah. I love the way that it reads if you look at the, the language. It says, and, and then it was morning and behold, Leah. All right, that's what happens. Jacob is completely surprised when he gets up in the morning. So what does Jacob do? Jacob goes and does what so many others have done about Jacob. He complains about, La about Laban's deception. So Jacob goes to complain about Laban's deception, just as so many others have gone to
to other people to complain about Jacob's deception. So he goes to complain about his deception. We see that the wheels have been turning in Laban's mind all along. Was his concern really just to marry off the older daughter? Yes, in part. But do we see what he really gets out of this deal? He gets seven more years of indentured servanthood from Jacob. He keeps somebody who we're going to find as we read through the story is seeing his crops prosper and his flocks prosper and is an adequate manager in his household. He gets that guy for seven more years paying nothing but his room and board so that he can work off another of his daughters. So we see here part of the wickedness of Laban. Laban is treating his daughters not as a father who has a covenant responsibility to provide a husband for them, but instead as assets to further his own wealth. So that's part of what we see happening here in the story. So here's the result. The result of Laban's deception is the defiling of Jacob's family. God will still work sovereignly to do his good work in Jacob's life, but the rest of Jacob's story is marred by the effects of of what Laban has done in the family unit. We come to Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. What we're left with is we have Jacob, who is supposed to bear the covenant promise. And what is the reality in Jacob's life? He has two women and two concubines. And we're going to see that that family unit is as dysfunctional as we would expect for it to be as we move forward. That's the text. So the question becomes, what do we do with the text? As we consider how this is affecting us, how God is speaking to us and make, uh, giving us a way to conform our individual lives and our community life as a church to the truth of his word, I want us to consider those, those expectations that we had when we went into the text about what God has been doing in Genesis. So here was the first one. Here's something we see in this and we can take to the bank in our lives. God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises to us even in the mess of our sin. God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises to us. This is nothing new, nothing revelatory coming to us out of this that we haven't already seen in Genesis. Nothing that we won't see over and over and over in Genesis and in the biblical text as a whole. Old Testament, New Testament, across genres of scripture. You and I are sinners. We will mess it up. God is gracious to do good work out of our sin. And we see this very clearly in this. But I want to see something even even very particular in this text. And that is that God will often do this in the parts of our life to which we're not paying attention. There have been thousands upon thousands of moments in your life and in my life when we were not conscious of God's will. When God was doing his good work in us and through us. So at one level, this, there, there's two applications to this point, okay? The fact, that, and, and, and the, the point I'm talking about is that God is doing work in us and through us of which we are not aware. One application, and in one sense, it serves as a dire warning to us. I, I want you to think again about the contrast between the faithful servant in Genesis 24, Jacob in Genesis 29. Look at what Jacob missed. He missed an opportunity to recognize that God was sovereignly moving his life and he failed to, to, to achieve the end for which he was created, and that is to confess in his life and the lives of all those around him, God is glorified for being good to me and faithful to me. And he missed it. And in similar ways, we all too often miss an opportunity to look at what God has done, to slow down at the end of a day, at the end of moments, at the end of events, at the end of seasons in our life, and say, look at God's goodness to us, and to proclaim it to those around us. Look at how God has been good to me and my family. 
Here's the second thing. And this, so, so at this level, this is a warning. It's also a great encouragement. Because even the moments that we pass off as every day, due to our ignorance, whether intentional or unintentional, to be clear, if we intentionally are ignorant about God's work in our life, that is sin. I want us to think about it on the unintentional side. What about when we just miss it, that God is working in our lives? It's an encouraging quote by John Piper that many of us has heard, that God is doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. This is a confession not that we are openly sinful and, and, and intentionally ignoring what God does. It's a confession of God's sovereignty. God is so much greater than us and, and God is so much more glorious than we in this state can even comprehend that he is doing work that we are not yet capable of understanding. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is confessing this. We know that all things work together for the good. Of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all circumstances are working to the good of those who love God. All things are serving for, for the glory of God and the goodness of those who love him. Circumstances of obvious joy are working for your good and for God's glory. Think Genesis chapter 21. Okay, Think, think the, the, the fulfillment of covenant promises. That is God working for his good and for the, the joy of his people, for his glory and the, the, the good of his people. Think bad circumstances. Circumstances of obvious pain are working for your good and for God's glory. Think Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Circumstances that seem mundane are working for your good and for God's glory. Think Genesis chapter 29. Jacob misses it. These seem to be inconsequential days to his life, yet God is using it to further the grand story of humanity. We also see here in this passage as we consider that God is working for Jacob's good, that the fact that God is working in us through our sin does not negate all the consequences of our sinful actions and decisions. Why is that? Because Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will reap. So don't take this as license to say that I can sin all I want because God will do, do things that, will do good things out of my sin. God won't let you and I mock him in that way. So even as he does good things, we experience some of the consequences. We see this with Jacob here. What's the consequence? The consequence is that Jacob is going to end up in a family dynamic with two wives and two concubines that will dictate that the rest of his life is a life of strife and pain. We're going to see that as we read through the rest of Genesis. So first... Look at what God is doing even in the mundane times. God is good to do covenant work. God is good to do his good work even when we don't notice. Here's the second thing I want us to see. This passage makes it very, very clear for us that any departure from understanding marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman leads to sin and chaos. This is particularly important for us. And I just want to give you two reasons it's important for us to consider this as a, as a, as a church, as a faith family in our context. Number one... As we enter into an increasingly global society, we are going to have to understand that many of the cultures with whom we're coming into contact do not take the one man, one woman covenantal nature of marriage as the norm. Okay, I was teaching in a, in a, con in a, in a, a Muslim majority context just a little bit more than a month ago, a group of believers, a group of godly pastors. And as I taught through the doctrine of the family from a biblical perspective, their number one question was, what happens when people come into the family of faith with multiple wives? 
that is something that we're going to have to realize may not just be something that we encounter on an international context in the future. It it is not unreasonable to think that because of cultural influence coming into Rome, Georgia, we deal with this or something like this, not only as we go to the nations, but as God and his grace sends the nations to us. So we have to be prepared for this. Here's the second reason, because Christian values that have informed the understanding of marriage and Western culture for nearly two millennia are starting to erode. And one of the things that we are going to see as we continue to see a cultural revolution, we're already seeing the the one man, one woman nature of the marriage covenant attack. And I'm not just talking about divorce. I'm talking about the structure of the covenant itself is under attack. And so we as Christians have to be very, very intentional that when we're dealing with people from other faiths and other cultures, or we're dealing with the erosion that sin has caused in our culture, that we are in no way saying, you just have to believe like I believed and like my grandpa's believed and my great granddaddy believed. That's insufficient. You have to be able to show, we have to be able to show that this is a biblical concept. And so this is not something that just comes from our culture. It doesn't just come through the common grace of God's goodness in culture to make our culture have a value that matches the Bible. It comes from the revealed will of God in Scripture that this is what is good for human families. Here's how we see this in the text, okay? The Old Testament is clear. This is one of several passages in the Old Testament that just makes it crystal clear that any marriage relationship outside of the first wife leads to a corruption of God's intention for marriage. We already saw the first one, Genesis 16, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, right? What happens? There's a promise, this grand promise made, Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, go outside, look at the stars, count them. If you can, your descendants are going to be like that. Abraham and Sarah interpret it saying, well, I guess that Abraham's got to have some kids. So they work outside of the one man, one woman covenant. What does it produce? It produces chaos and strife in the family. Here we see it with Rachel and Leah. Here's a temptation that we have to overcome. We're going we're gonna to look at this. Just because Rachel is the wife that Jacob loved does not mean that she is the wife of the covenant. He marries Leah first. Didn't mean to marry Leah first, but there's a covenant obligation to Leah. Just consider this for a moment. Consider how the Old Testament showing us about the importance of the first wife. Leah is going to bear Judah. We're going to see that next week. The son of the, the, the son of Jacob who carries on the messianic promise. Rachel, not Leah, is going to attempt to bring idols into Jacob's household. And then Leah, not Rachel, is going to be buried beside Jacob in the ancestral tomb in the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham purchased to bury Sarah in. In other words, we're going to see in Genesis this very explicitly that even though we're going to see that, that Jacob is going to just destroy his family by showing love for, love for Rachel that he will not show to Leah, Leah is the good wife. Leah is the covenant wife. Leah is the first wife. We also see this in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah and Peninnah, the two wives of Elkanah. We are introduced to them in such a way that we cannot miss Hannah's the first wife because we're told that the name of the first, the first wife was Hannah. The name of the second was Peninnah. Then Hannah, before she has a child at Shiloh, receives the offering that's due to the firstborn. The Old Testament's very clear. We see plural marriage enter into the Old Testament narrative. Why? Because that is a cultural corruption. It's cultural sin that the people of God are constantly participating in. The Old Testament is resolute. We do not have an Old Testament that tells us plural marriage is an option. From, from Genesis chapter 2 forward, we see one man, one woman, anything outside of this is sin that leads to chaos. 
Here's the last thing I want us to see on this, this application point. The covenant of marriage is not predicated on romantic love. Let me say that one more time. The covenant of marriage is not built on, predicated on, depend on romantic love. Jacob's love for Rachel does not trump the commitment that he makes to Leah. She is the first wife, the true covenant wife. Were he to handle this in all godliness, he would have woke up, verse 25, and and the morning came and behold, Leah, and he weeps and he moves forward with the wife of the covenant. That's what faithfulness would have looked like. That's not what we see in the story and we see chaos emerge from it. If marriage is not predicated on romantic love, then marriage cannot be legitimately terminated based on a lack of romantic love. Let me just make this very clear. Falling out of love with one another is not a reason to break the covenant of marriage. It doesn't make it good. And I want to be very clear on this. I want to be very clear that I think the normal way that God works in the husband-wife relationship is that when the covenant is made and when the Christian covenant is entered into, that we're going to read from a moment in Ephesians 5, that husbands love wives and they are godly leaders of their wives and the wives are partnering with the husband in godly covenant submission. Romantic love abounds. But it's produced by covenant love. Covenant love doesn't depend on romantic love. So if you're in a marriage, or, or, or those of you who are not married, if you ever enter into a marriage, if any of us find ourselves thinking, I, I'm struggling to have romantic love for my spouse, my spouse who I'm in covenant with, here is, here is that my admonition, the wisdom that we see pour forth from the, from the Bible. Love your spouse in covenant love and pray that romantic love comes from it. I think it usually does. If it doesn't, do it anyway because that is godly submission that glorifies the Father. And we see has ultimately a better end than just romantic love because this is the last thing I want us to see. It is the covenant love of marriage that provides the clearest picture of the gospel in romantic relationship. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives. Not, not kiss them and cry kind of love. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Covenant love. I'm bound to this love. I love my wife like Jesus loves me. She's loving me like the church is to love Jesus. That is love that magnifies the gospel. That's a better end. That is a better end than 50 years of Valentine's Days. That has eternal focus. Here's the last thing we see. By the way, I I know I'm way over time. This is the effect of Mitch's discipleship over the last year. God is using the human story to redeem the world to know God and enjoy Him forever. It's very clear in this passage. Jacob's story continues to make it clear that God's people cannot redeem themselves through their own faithfulness. The stories of the patriarchs in Genesis make us expect that God will rescue His people from the catastrophe they create from their sin by the sovereign will of His plan. In this passage, we're seeing it point towards something. Because the Bible doesn't 
The Bible doesn't kill our expectation. The Bible takes our expectations and they're frustrated over and over and over again. But ultimately, all of them are fulfilled and we find them far better than they ever could have been. And here's how we see this story pointing toward it. The full manifestation of God's plan will come in the descendant of Jacob and Leah, the descendant of this covenant marriage, the lion of Judah, whose faithfulness will swallow up our unfaithfulness and restore us to the fellowship with the triune God for which we were created. This story and all of its messy sinfulness is working towards that good end. Your story and my story with all of its messy sinfulness is working towards that good end. We are in a story in which God is sovereignly moving us motivating us every step of the way, providentially providing for us by His covenant love. And ultimately, He is going to fulfill all of the promises of that covenant, all of the expectations of that love through the work of Jesus Christ, began at His resurrection from the dead, consummated at His return to make all things new. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You so much, Lord, for this opportunity to come together. Lord God, we just thank You for Your Word. God, please... Allow us this morning to understand, to dwell on the fact that your word is informing not just what has happened in the past, but God, what is happening right now in our lives. Lord God, don't let us miss the expectations that you give us in all of scripture, that you are working towards ultimately restoring every one of us who you have called to believe in you to the end for which we were made to know you, and to enjoy you forever. Father God, as we now enter into a time of worship, I pray that that thought, that all of our sin, all the injustice of the world, all of the frustration of the promises that we're waiting to come true will one day dissolve away. And Father God, that the day is coming when we will worship you in spirit and in truth and in perfection. And Father God, may our worship now be a promise of what is to come. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.